Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7, please. Romans chapter 7. In our text verses this morning, going to be verses 7 through 13. So I invite you to turn your attention to Romans 7, and we'll begin in verse 7. So follow along as I read. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. I'm going to preach to you this morning on the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And let's let the Word of God work in our heart today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us today. And Lord, I do pray for your Spirit to lead and to direct and to work in hearts and to open our mind and our understanding. And and Lord, that even that the Spirit would bring conviction to the heart of those that are lost today. And Lord, I pray that men would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Lord, use your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably about, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, somewhere around there, not exactly sure, there was a there was a book that was written entitled The Closing of the American Mind. And the idea in the book was that uh, what was happening in our country and in America, especially with the youth, uh, the college age crowd and so on, what was being observed was that as, as students would come into the university system, that, that almost every single one of them uh, had the idea and the philosophy or the mindset that truth was relative, okay? So you follow the, what I'm talking about here? And so the book, as it goes on, is exploring this idea and this truth or this observation that in the mindset or the culture of American youth, that truth was something that was completely relative. And the thesis or went on to talk about how you could, you could automatically know the response of students and you could automatically know what the reaction would be when that philosophy or that mindset was being put to the test. And you could predict what it was going to be. And the, and the prediction was that when they were challenged with the idea that truth is 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 singular or exclusive and not relative, they were completely uncomprehending of that, and it was like shock, almost like you're questioning 2 plus 2 equals 4. 
it was so ingrained into the minds of, of youth that truth is something that's relative. And the, the book goes on to talk about the chief virtue of this philosophy of relative, uh, relativism, uh, that the thing that it was, was trying to, uh, to um, solidify in the idea or the culture and in the minds of people was this. It was about tolerance and openness. And the main enemy of tolerance was the person who thinks that he or she has truth and has a right view of things as opposed to others. And the philosophy or the reasoning of the world and the mindset of, of truth being exclusive or that you think that you're right is that it leads to wars, it leads to persecutions, it's what's led to slavery, that was the reason for slavery, xenophobia, racism, chauvinism, and all of these bad things, things that the world views as the negative, right? And the point of it all was not to go about to correct those wrong things like racism and other things. That really wasn't the issue or the point. Rather, the point was to try to get, to pe get people to think that there's nothing that's actually right at all. And the reason behind that was because it frees us, it liberates us to be able to live however we want to live. And nobody can tell us that we're wrong. The only person who's wrong is the one who tells you that you're wrong or that thinks that you have truth. And in that book, it goes on even deeper to talk about the reaction that students in university systems had when, when they were challenged with this question. Okay, well, if that is true, then, then who do you think is evil or wrong? And the book tells us that almost immediately the response of, of the huge majority was Adolf Hitler. This is a great study. I mean, it's very fascinating. And their response almost immediately, overwhelmingly, was Adolf Hitler. They rarely mention anybody else. The problem that presents itself then is that, and the book goes on to describe this, is that they have no idea of what evil actually is. They actually doubt its existence, but the reason for that is because it justifies their own life. And, and the book says, and here's a quote, Hitler is just another ab abstraction, an item to fill up an empty category. Although they live in a world in which the most terrible deeds are being performed and they see brutal crime in the streets, they turn aside. Perhaps they believe that evil deeds are performed by persons who, if they got the proper therapy, would not do them again. That there are evil deeds, just not evil people. And the reason that I even bring this up is because the worldview of even young people, say, I, like I said, 25 or 30 years ago that was observed then is, is completely pervasive 
in our culture, in our society today. It's not something that was relegated just to the youth or, or to those in the university system. It's something that has completely pervaded our society and the worldly relativism that minimizes or even eliminates the concept of sin is not just out there. It's actually worked its way into Christianity and into churches. And what I mean by that, and I'll just give you an illustration, the popular megachurches of today, they thrive by making the church what they call a safe place. And a church ought to be a safe place. But what they mean by that is this is a place where you can come and you're never going to be judged by your lifestyle or what goes on in your life. You're never going to be judged for that. In fact... Various types of lifestyles and living gets relabeled as simply personal preferences. The gospel itself is something that gets retooled as a way that Jesus can help you succeed or reach your personal goals. And if you want your church to thrive and if you want your church to grow, you don't ever mention anything negative like sin. Rather, you tell people how much God loves you, how much God loves them, and that they themselves are lovable people. you got to build their self-esteem, but never suggest that they're wretched and vile sinners in the eyes of God. That's relativism. And the problem is, if we are not sinners then we do not need a Savior who died to pay the penalty for our sin. More than a hundred years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon lamented, and he said this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Another preacher said this, the biblical doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial to an understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. Whatever we may think, we cannot be right and clear about the way of salvation unless we are right and clear about our condition as sinners. Romans chapter 7, our text, is probably one of the most penetrating passages on sin in all of Scripture. And we need to understand what Paul is saying here. And in our text, by, in, in context of this, Paul is defending the integrity and the righteousness of God's law against the critics who argued that Paul was teaching and implying that because he preached that salvation was by grace through faith, that somehow the law of God is bad or somehow the law of God is sin. And Paul says, God forbid. In other words, he says, may it never be. And he exclaims in verse 7, look at our text again in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. That means may it never be. And he says, nay or no, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And Paul exclaims here, no, the law is not sin. He exonerates God's law as something that is holy and just and good and right. Look at verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And he exonerates the holiness of God's law while at the same time 
showing us and his readers exactly the reason why God gave his law. And God gave his law to convict us of our sin and to bring us to the end of ourselves. God did not give his law as a means for finding favor with God. If we keep the law and we obey the law and we do all the commandments that somehow we'll find favor with God. No, God gave us the law to convict us of our sin and bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might see our sin as exceeding sinful and cause us to flee to Christ for our salvation. Our innate self-righteousness is so entrenched into the human condition that until the law comes along and strips us of our self-righteousness and convicts us of our sin and shows us what we are, we will never come to the place where we cast ourselves fully upon Jesus Christ. Our culture adds to that by telling us that we're not sinners. We're actually good people, and there's goodness in all of us. And if we just have the right environment and we fan that little flame of goodness inside of us, that, you know, the goodness will come out. And if we take, you know, the people out of the bad situation or out of the environment and we put them in a good one, that they'll flourish and they'll thrive. That has never, ever happened in the history of mankind. Have you ever noticed that? Never happened in the history of mankind, and it's been tried over and over and over and over again. You know, you take the people out of the inner city and out of their bad condition, and they're helpless people. It's not their fault. And we take them out of that, and we put them in a good environment, and they begin to flourish and thrive. It's never happened. Culture after culture after culture after culture. Because we're not good people. There's nothing good in any of us. But we don't see that because we don't have the law of God showing it to us, or we don't want to hear it or see it. Even in religion, I always have thought it was almost funny, the different versions of hymnals that are out there. And you know, old-time songs like At the Cross, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, that He would devote... I can't remember all the words, but then the sacred head for such a worm as I. Well, they change that. And they change that wording to such a one as I. We soften the blow, right? We're not worms. We're not sinners. We're good people. That's what our culture does. People want to bring Jesus into their life. But they think of Jesus as a useful coach or a helper for, you know, some self-improvement program. But in order to trust Him as our Savior, in order to have peace with God, we've got to come to the place where we see the depth of our sin as an offense to God and be exposed for what we are. That's what Paul is trying to get at in Romans chapter 7. That our sin is so sinful and it's got to become exceeding sinful in our own eyes, so that we flee to the Savior. So I want to break this passage down concerning the law of God. And we're just going to say the Word of God, because all of it's the law of God. We're going to break this passage down and see what Paul tells us concerning the law of God and preach to you this morning on the exceeding sinfulness 
of sin. The first thing that I want you to note is in verse 7, and that is that the law reveals sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The first thing we see here is that the law reveals to us what sin is. The Apostle Paul is addressing some concerns that he had uh, evidently heard as to whether the law of Moses was sinful in the first place. And he poses this rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. May it never be. It could be rendered this way too. Certainly not. No, the law is not sin. And then he uses an illustration. He said, I had not known sin, but by the law. And the idea that Paul is developing is that the law defines or codifies what sin is. In other words, sin has always been around ever since the fall of man, ever since Adam sinned. Sin has always been around, but when the law of God came, it exposed it and revealed it for what, that it was truly there. To illustrate it further, he says, I had not known lust, except the law had sinned that said, thou shalt not covet. It's sort of a, a play on words here. That word translated as lust is a Greek word. It's the noun form of the word covet. But both have a sense of, of something that is an improper desire. And Paul is saying is, I wouldn't know that that was wrong unless the law of God showed me and revealed that those desires were wrong. The thought is that there's always and uh, there's that there's always been improper desires in the human condition. But one day the law came around and it was given and it was showed us that those kinds of things, listen, are prohibited in God's eyes and it codified it as sin, as wrong. And it was sort of like people existed, people lived, but they were walking around in the dark. All that was already there, but they couldn't see it. I couldn't see it in my own life until the lights came on and revealed what it is. That's what the law did. It's a revealer of sin by defining it. The law of God defines for us what thoughts and feelings and actions are that are wrong to show us what we really are. If it wasn't for the law of God that said, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, we wouldn't know and understand that lying or telling, or, or telling a lie is something that's sin in God's eyes. We wouldn't know that lying is something that, that, that defiles and lying is something that, that, is, that we're going to be judged for. We all lie. Some of you sitting in this room this morning... Some of you young people, you need to recognize and you need to understand that the lies that you tell your parents, the lies that you tell each other, the lies that you speak uh, to, you know, to, to make yourself look better, or the lies that you speak to try to cover things up, those are things for which God will judge you. When you cheat, On your tests, you cheat on your schoolwork. You wouldn't know that that 
action is wrong except the law of God said this is sin. That's what Paul is saying here. The law is not evil. The law is good and right and just. But the thing about the law is that it exposed me for what I really am. It it exposed sin. It reveals sin in my life to show me what I am. Listen, the bottom line is this. The law or the word of God reveals the sinfulness of your human flesh through your actions. But it also reveals the wretchedness of the human heart even through your thoughts. You know the things that you think that nobody else knows about? It's still wrong. It's still sin. For which we are going to be judged. When Jesus said, you may not have committed murder, the act of physical murder, but if you hate somebody in your heart, it's the same thing. And it's meant to reveal to us the wretchedness of our human condition for which we will be judged of God. So Paul says that the law is a revealer of sin. But then look at verse 8. Secondly, Paul says the law revives sin. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Here he says the law revives sin. Paul tells us that sin takes the law as an opportunity to tempt us to evil. Notice a couple of the words here. But sin taking occasion by the commandment. The word occasion literally means opportunity. And it was a military word that was used to refer to a beachhead or a starting point for an expedition, a base of operations, if you will. And then notice the word concupiscence. It's the same word as lust. It just talks about forbidden desires. And Paul is saying sin sees the law as an opportunity to create in us a desire for sin, a starting point. It worked in him all kinds of lust, all kinds of forbidden desire. It stirred up the rebel in his heart, making him want to assert himself and right to do as he pleased. Let me just give you an example. Pornography. I think it's a problem. It's a problem in churches. Much more than we know. God forbids it. But your flesh says, I like it. What will it hurt to try it just once? What will it hurt to just look at it for a second? It can't be all that bad. And you know what? I can be forgiven later. I can ask the Lord to forgive me later. That's what your flesh says. Our sin nature springboards off the commandment to provoke us to sin. And Paul says in the last part of this verse, look at it, he says, but sin taking occasion, opportunity, by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law 
sin was dead. The last part of the verse is not teaching us that before the law there was no sin. We know that's true because in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that God looked down from heaven and saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth. That was before the law was ever given. Sin was always present. It's not teaching us that before the law there was no sin. What this means is that when the law didn't exist, the full knowledge of what was wrong didn't exist either. In other words, people could live, and they could live in such a way without the exposure that the way I'm living is wrong. But now that the law is here, there's no excuse. There's no excuse that I didn't know. That's why the law is so important when it comes to to talking to somebody about their their issue of salvation. There's all kinds of religion out there. There's all kinds of confusion out there about what is right. and, And I believe this and I believe that. But you know what people can't get away from? They can't get away from thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's the law of God. You're a liar. You can't get away from thou shalt not covet. Desiring things that are not yours. You can't get away from thou shalt not steal. You can't get away from those things. And people could live that way in ignorance. But when the law came and the Word of God reveals what sin is, there's no excuse anymore. It revives sin. When you're witnessing to somebody and you're trying to lead somebody to Christ, it is so important to use the law of God because without the law of God showing them what they are, there will never, ever be a genuine conversion. Because if we're not sinners, then we don't need a Savior. But Paul says what the law did is it revived it. It exposed me. I can't live without, or with an excuse anymore. It exposed me. It revives sin. Then look at verses 9 through 11. Thirdly, we see that the law ruins sinners. In verse 9, he says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. In verse 9, where Paul says, I was alive without the law once, but the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The idea is, prior to the knowledge of God's law, I went about my merry way. I didn't have conviction in my life or consciousness about how I lived. But then one day, I was confronted by the law of God, and then came conviction about my sin and guilt, and then even rebellion, because now I'm choosing to not let it go. It's always been there, but now it's defined and it's condemning. There was a time when he, in Paul's life, when he thought that he was doing pretty good. Look over in Philippians chapter 3 and note Paul's own testimony here. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Notice Paul is his own testimony here. There was a time when I thought I was doing pretty good. And if anybody thinks they have something to glory in their flesh, I probably had more. I was religious, zealous, doing the, quote, work of God, pleasing to God. But in reality, what I didn't see was how wretched and poor and blind and naked I was condemned before God. There was a time when he thought he was doing pretty good, but then the law came, he said. His eyes were opened, and he had been spiritually dead before, even though he didn't know it. But now he knows it. Does that make sense? He thought he was doing good, but in reality, he was spiritually dead. He just didn't see it. But now the word of God exposed to him, shows him, I am spiritually dead and I know it, even though I'm religious. So when the spirit of God opened his eyes to the fact that he had violated God's law, not just once, but regularly, he came to realize that all of his efforts and all of his righteousness and all of his works were nothing but filthy rags, and Paul learned that harsh reality that all of my righteousness, all of the things that I do to earn favor with God are nothing but filth in the eyes of God. And the application is this. It works the same way in you and me. We see ourselves as we really are through the eyes of God and through the eyes of the law of God It has a way of shattering our self-image. In fact, the knowledge of the reality of sin is something that is devastating to a person who really sees it. And when a person comes to the place where they really see it, and they're devastated by the fact that they're condemned before God, they know the only hope they have is to run to Jesus Christ. The reason why churches are filled up with unregenerate people. They have professions of faith. We believe in Jesus and we do all the right spiritual things. We've got all the lingo. We say all the right words. We've got all the things down. We even know our Bible to some degree, but there's no power in the life to change it. There's no real uh, heart for the things of God and you've got a church full of religious people that are lost. Because why? They've never, ever, ever truly seen how in danger they are because of their sin. Words, prayers, professions, they don't do a blessed thing to bring about conversion. The reality of sin is something that's devastating. And when a person sees it, it breaks their self-image. There's, no, there's nothing but, Lord, I'm in trouble. I need your mercy. But you know what? That is the first essential step to coming to the place of salvation. Before we can ever be saved, we've got to become lost and condemned. Now look at verse 10. Paul says, in the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Paul is telling us here that he had trusted the law to give him eternal life. He was trying to do good and keep the law. 
But in the end, all the law could deliver was condemnation and death because it showed him he could never keep it. He could never do right. And the law could never save in the first place. Keeping lists of do's and don'ts could never save anybody. The law itself could never give life. All it can do is condemn because it shows us we can never keep the righteous standard of God. But many people are trusting some sort of profession, some sort of religious work of the past, some sort of religious activity that they've experienced to get them to God. But it's never going to work. It never has and it never will. Nothing can save the soul but Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in any other name other than Jesus Christ and what God requires. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. That word repentance and repentance toward God is absolutely what is missing in many churches around our country today. Repentance toward God. Why? Because I've offended Him. Just because of who I am. And God, I'm sorry for my wretched condition. I deserve judgment. I deserve it. I agree with you, God. But I don't want it. And I need you and your mercy in my life. That's a heart attitude. A heart attitude of repentance toward God. I've offended you. Now look at verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Sin had taken the opportunity the law had given it in the life of Paul and had lulled him into believing that a life lived keeping the law was a life that would be saved. And Paul came to realize that a life lived under, under the demands of the law was nothing more than a living death. It could never give him life. It only could condemn. And so the law, Paul says... It ruined him. It ruined him. But it caused him to see what he really was. And then look at verses 12 through 13, because thirdly, we see that the law reflects sin. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the covenant might become exceeding sinful. In verse 12, Paul's conclusion is that the law is holy, that it's just, and that it's good. And if there's a problem, it's not with the law, it's with the one who is an offender, the one who breaks the law. The law reveals God's character. The law reveals the righteousness of God. The law reveals the holiness of God, the standard of God, while at the same time reflecting back to us our own iniquity and our own condition. There are those in our day 
and maybe even some sitting here today who don't, who don't, like, don't like a message like that. They don't like the Bible to be preached in its entirety. They don't like this kind of truth because the Bible is defining for them and showing them and exposing their lifestyle as evil. That's why pastors will often dumb down the Word, make it more palatable to people so that the church can grow. But when the Word is preached and the Spirit of God is moving, it reveals the holiness of God. It reflects the sinfulness of men, which is exactly what we need so that we'll run to the Savior. That's how Paul concludes it in verse 13. Notice he says, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin in my own life, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In my own eyes, it's already exceeding sinful, but I'm the one who needs to see that. He tells us that the law was given to reveal how rotten and sinful the human heart is. And the law of God becomes the standard of comparison between God's righteousness and us so that we can see the truth of what we really are. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a murderer. You're rotten to the core. And God will judge you for that sin, which is why you need to run to the Savior. And when we see ourselves for what we really are. It's devastating. And it's humbling. The Bible is clear that the law was given to point us to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 says that no one is justified by the works of the law. The reason the law was given was to bring us to or point us to Jesus Christ. It was never given as a means of salvation. And the whole point in the conclusion is this. The law can do many things with sin. It can reveal sin. It revives sin. It ruins the sinner. It reflects sin. But there's one thing that the law can never do with sin. It can never remove sin. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so God gave His Word to show us how desperately we need the Lord Jesus Christ and run to God for mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the question is, where do you find yourself today? Do you think yourself to be fairly decent person? Or do you think yourself to be not so bad? Maybe you're not even trying to keep the law as a means of finding favor with God. Maybe you're just ignorant to what you really look like. And maybe you're just ignorant as to the judgment of God that you stand under. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all condemned to die. But God in His great mercy 
wherewith he loved us, even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. You're here today, you need to be saved. God's been dealing with your heart, you know it. You need to respond to him today. God will and is merciful, but the Bible says God's spirit will not always strive with man. There's coming a day, based on the response of human beings, there's coming a day when God's Spirit is going to stop trying to draw you and pull you to Himself. Don't reject Him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that You would work in hearts this morning to draw to Christ. Lord, that we would understand our sinful heart, our sinful condition, the wretched of our nature. Father, may your spirit bring that great conviction upon the heart. Father, would you save a soul even today? Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for his shed blood. I thank you for salvation in him. Lord, I'm thankful for the day that you opened my eyes to my own condition and how Wretched I was and the danger that I was in of the judgment of God. Thank you for not giving up on me. Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw to your son today. And I pray, Father, for the child of God here, Lord, that we'd never forget what manner of men we were. Such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you are clean. Lord, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful blessing salvation is. Lord, may we never lose sight of the great miracle of our own salvation. May we never lose the joy of knowing that our sins forgiven. Lord, may we never stop learning to love you more because of what you've done for us. May you have your will and way in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.